So Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So far, let us pray. O Lord God, to, as mere creatures, to speak of the greatness and the majesty, the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a humbling task. And I pray, Lord, that you would give to this poor, weak, stammering tongue the ability to bring forth some of your excellencies, And I pray that you would give us ears to receive them, hearts to rejoice in the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, may we go from here having a higher and a greater view of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise and to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So this morning I have three points I want to bring up and we're throwing them on the overhead so that people um, can remember them. Uh, There was a request to do that. So there are these three points, uh, the preeminent position, the powerful prepositions, and permanent possession. So first of all, preeminent position. We are looking this morning at 15b, the second half, and 16. So just setting the stage again where Colossians is for those who were uh, part of the earlier messages here. In verses 11 through 12, we saw that the apostle is encouraging the Colossians to a fruitful life. To say, you've believed in Jesus, now bear fruit. May it be permeated in all the fruit bearing with a thankful attitude. And if you think of that, thankfulness is such a, an important attribute, a quality of the Christian life. Because remember, in Romans chapter 1, part of the sins that are listed, it says, neither were they thankful. Are we a thankful people? It's part of the fruit of Christians. Verse 13 Paul's building on the reason for thankfulness, and he explains it by virtue of the great kingdom transfer from being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom, literally, of the son of his love. And the reason it's important to just retain that original son of his love, because it is from there that Paul springboards out to demonstrate who this son of the father's love is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, in verse 14, begins to extol the praises of Jesus Christ. 
And as he explains the greatness and the richness of the redemptive plan that is accomplished through the Son, in verses 15 through 20, Paul erupts in a praise hymn. It was most likely a hymn, these verses 15 through 20. The first two phrases or verses, of actually first 3, 15, 16, and 17, will show forth the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the first creation. And the last verses, verses um, 18 through 20, will show forth his praises over the new creation and his supremacy over that. If you remember last time when we looked at Colossians 15 verse, uh, 1 verse 15a, we looked at what it means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we saw that all the glorious praises and all the excellencies of the Father equally radiate and equally shine forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from beholding Christ, the church is transformed into that same image from glory unto glory, as it says in Corinthians. So today, the second half. Now, as we set the stage here for 15b, where it says the firstborn of every creature, I want you to just imagine for a second living in the days before photographs and televisions, and you're in Saskatchewan, you have seen the ocean, you've been to the Pacific, you've seen the vastness, you've seen the might, the power of the waves, and how, how, how you can't even look to the end of it, and you're talking to a young eight-year-old boy who's only been on the prairies and the only water he's seen of note is the pond on the back 40. And you're trying to describe the ocean to this young man and, and words fail to describe it. And so everything you say is an understatement of what the ocean is. In similar ways, the Gnostic teachers who had not even beheld Jesus through the preaching of the apostles, they were understating, they were falling miserably short of describing who Jesus Christ is. And to them, to the Gnostic teachers, Gnostic, by the way, means gnosis, knowledge. They thought they had higher knowledge. And, and they thought they would describe to the Colossians who Jesus was. And, and to them, he was nothing more than a powerful angel. And so he's great but not supreme. He was equal with angels, one of many. He was a big one, a powerful one. So is Jesus one of many angels? Is Jesus the greatest angel among the angels? Is that who Jesus is? Or is he more? The church must know and cannot get enough of who Jesus Christ really is. And so Paul undoes the Gnostic heresy and starts to just resonate with praises about Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He is the firstborn of every creature. Now, first of all, what this does not mean, firstborn. Cults, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, love to make hay on this verse. They really do. Because they say, well, firstborn, we have to take as it is. It's simple. It's the first to be born. Therefore, first to be created and the Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus is a very special person because he was created by God before all things. That is what they teach. Nothing new under the sun, is there? In isolating this verse from the context, they have built a strong case for the creation of Jesus. After all, they say, it says what it means. Don't you read the Bible? Don't you take it as it is at face value? 
Firstborn means he had a starting point. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus had a starting point? Isn't that what this text says? And because he had a starting point, he could not have been eternal. Perhaps you've interacted with Jehovah's Witnesses on this very point. And they will say then, he's God, lesser God, not God Almighty, not El Shaddai. It is precisely when we fail to apply proper interpretation techniques to the Bible, it's called fancily hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible, that we are distorted in our thinking. And we are walking a tightrope where we easily will fall into the cults and heresy. Paul knows how serious this is. If you just flip to Colossians 2 verse 8, he warns them about these teachers. He's very intent. He says, beware, lest any man spoil you through, dis- through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. He warns them, beware. Are you watching out? Do you know the books you read? Do you know the books that are going into your young children's mind? Are you watching out young men, young women? What are you feeding your mind with? What university professor is speaking to you? Because you're very susceptible at that age. I just heard this week somebody said to me that the most susceptible ages for young people are their early years and when they go into college. Because those are the ones that will set trajectories for the path ahead so vitally. Have you asked yourself what the principles of biblical interpretation are that you hold to? Be interesting exercise, hey, to write down how do I interpret the Bible? What principles do I take? Am I taking what one author would call the inspired principles? What are those? Those are looking at how the New Testament interprets the Old. Look how the Bible interprets itself. Those are principles we can glean from Scripture itself. Have you noticed how the apostles do that? And so know, therefore, what fountains your beliefs come from. Know how to interpret. Correct principles, correct rules of interpretation are vital. And the Bible says, James warned, let not many be masters, teachers, for unto them is the greater condemnation. Be careful. Be careful. So what does this word firstborn mean? The Greek word is prototokos. Prototokos. Indeed, it often means the first to be born. As when Mary had her firstborn, prototokos son, Jesus Christ, he was her first child. It can never, however, be translated as first created. That is violating the original language. And that has to be discarded. So when you're meeting somebody who's oh, first created, it's a deductive argument and it's wrong. The same word, if you noticed when we were reading our text, is used again in verse 18. When it says of Jesus, he is the firstborn, same word, prototokos, from the dead. And that is in respect to the new creation. So again, the word there gets used, but now it's not physical generation, is it? This is a spiritual thing. It does not have to mean first child, but there is a link. And I want you to see the link from the Bible itself. Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to see a link here how the word gets used in the Old Testament. 
So Exodus 4. Please follow along here. And verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. You see the play on words there? What Pharaoh is to his son, God has an analogical relationship with Israel to himself. But obviously we can't say that God literally begat Israel. It is a spiritual begetting. And yet there's a relationship. There's a complete play on this here because even Pharaoh to their gods would be considered his firstborn. And so this is back in the culture how they understood the word to mean way more than just limiting it to the first child in a series. There's a deeper meaning here. The word prototokos also is very similar, listen to this word, to another Greek word that's only used once in the Bible, and it is the word birthright. Prototokia. Sounds very similar, does it not? It's only used once, like I said, but the similarity shows a foundational root. It is used in Hebrews 12, 16, Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So there's some link here to the firstborn and the birthright. The birthright refers to the right to inherit lordship over the household. The birthright implies preeminence. It implies authority over all possessions. It is the right in the Bible of the double portion, Deuteronomy 21, 17. And therefore, this word prototokos is more a positional word, a functional word. For example, we know that Jacob, not Esau, got the birthright. We know that Joseph, not Reuben, got the birthright, 1 Chronicles 5. They became, with that birthright, Lord over the household. And therefore, the word prototokos, firstborn, speaks here of position, a position of supremacy, a position of preeminence. And that is how we're supposed to interpret this word. When Christ here is seen as the eternal preeminent Lord over all things. That's what it means. So Paul is in effect saying to the Gnostic teachers, you have desecrated the name of Jesus. His name is preeminent above all names. He is firstborn, prototokos, over all creation. He is its Lord, its master. He inherits everything. And that's what it means. Now remember, if we remember back to 15a, when we looked at the idea of image, we saw that Jesus' substance is equal with that of the Father. His being is. But by adding this word firstborn, Paul is saying not only is his being equal with God, his position also has no contenders. It stands above all. Your people 
Can any other claim, such as the title firstborn, be used for Jesus Christ? Oh, consider with that title the greatness of the Jesus we worship. Raise your hearts to heaven as you think of Jesus. You must raise your hearts higher than the greatest kings, higher than the greatest rulers, higher than the heavens itself. Know the ruler of the heavens, Jesus Christ, is great. And we must respond with humility as we come before him. As the Bible says, bow down before him. Do him homage, O ye kings of the earth. Worship, worship him. Now, Paul's not done with these false teachers. He moves on to explain Prototokos so that there's no evading what he's teaching here because we cannot compromise on the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul spends a lot of time here on this. Notice in the text it says, for by him were all things created in verse 16. For is an explanatory word. It means because. So he's going to actually ground what he means in defining it, in defending it, in verse 16, in grounding it. The argument Paul makes is simple. It's, it's super simple. What does it mean? Prototokos means Jesus is Lord over everything because he made everything. That's all of verse 16 in a nutshell. And that equals with what the Bible says elsewhere. The creative powers described in John 1 and Hebrews 1 similarly. Listen to this. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he cannot be a created being. Hebrews, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And then it says this, by whom also he made the worlds. So there's no room to put Jesus inside creation. He stands over creation. He lords over it. He towers above it. And I think coming to grips with the lordship of Christ means so much about who we are as creatures. It means our relationships. It means our marriages. It means our parenting, our work, our time at school, our time in leisure, are designed for and made by a sovereign Lord. And therefore, we can't just do with it what we want. It's not my time, my job, for me. It's for him. We have a master, a preeminent Lord. The problem is, most people don't want to believe in a preeminent Jesus, a matchless Christ. They didn't in Paul's day, and I'll tell you, they don't now. Jesus gets turned into something you add, almost like a, a Leatherman knife, a multi-tool you can use when things get tough. You can pull out the different devices and use it. And that's Jesus enough, you know. I'll strap him to me, when I, and I'll use him when I want him. Now notice it says, all things, however, were made by him. And people will say, yeah, but... All can mean all kinds of things. And again, people worm and squirm with saying it depends on your interpretation. And they try to brush off the preeminence of Christ by wiggling out of the word all. Have you heard people say that before? Well, that's just your interpretation. I get that a lot. It's sad. People don't want to wrestle with the text when they say that. They want to discard the text. Paul, however, is not easily thwarted. Twice in the verse, he emphatically says all things. Notice it says, for by him were all things created. 
And then at the end, he says again, all things were created by him. Both times, he uses the plural form of the word all things to show you there's nothing outside of the bounds of his creation. You can't say a segmented lordship. It's a total lordship. And just in case people dispute the word all, Paul goes on to explain the scope of what he means with all things. Because some people say, oh yeah, for sure, he created everything we see, but not the things we don't see. I mean, good night, that would be a little bit much for him. And, and they, no, Paul says, no, 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 things in heaven and things in earth, the heavenly realms, which yes, in the Bible would contain the planets, the moon, the stars, all of space, but especially it refers to the heaven of the angelic realms. And Paul says those things were created by him as well. And then when he speaks of the things on earth, it means everything in this planet, from the deep oceans to the heights of the mountains, from the tiniest of insects that we squish when we walk on the sidewalk and don't even think about, to the mighty lion that people tremble at, from kings to peasants, from you to me to all of us, from civilized cities to those people hidden in the jungles, there is nothing and no one that Jesus did not make. Paul's not giving these teachers any wiggle room. And so when you talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, just let them see what all things really means. All things means all things. It's plural. It's everything. There's no domain, no realm over which he does not say, mine, I made it. Now, the Gnostic teachers were very good at being experts of the things you don't see. And which makes sense, right? Because that's where you get to convince somebody, the invisible. Hey, we've got secret knowledge, Gnostic. And so they would claim power and insight into the unseen realm. And boastfully, they said they understood the angelic realm, the spirit work world, how it was and was operated. And therefore, Jesus must be part of that realm. They, they know that. Now, there's power here, and it is fertile grounds to, to grasp susceptible souls. And that is why when it comes to the unseen realm, I would encourage you not to step outside of the bounds of Scripture because it's a very dangerous realm to play in. And it's a very dangerous realm to get ideas from, from outside sources, especially experiences. Oh, I experienced this. I experienced that. Tether all your thinking about the unseen realm to Scripture. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is the only impregnable fortress to protect against subversion. Now notice the language that Paul uses. Thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. Now this could refer to the legitimate domains, orders that Christ has created in the heavenly realms. It could very well mean that. I lean that way. Other people say here, Paul is playing on the fanciful speculation of the Gnostics and he's basically saying, hey, whatever you call them, Jesus made it all. I tend to lean toward the idea that yes, Jesus did create ranks and order and that's a discussion you can have with me after the service if you want to know more about that. Now, to consider Christ then, as we look at all of these realms, is to consider a creator from the vantage point of being a creature. That's quite something. We as mere creatures consider him who is creator. It is to meditate on one 
who we came to know by his works and whom we have come to know through his word, but whose goings are from eternity. It is reflecting on one whose words we read in scripture and yet whose very same words are the words that created everything and spoke it into existence. And so there should be a just and a right humility when we approach the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point, powerful prepositions. It's much bigger than what I've just explained. Again, the preeminence of Christ we've seen and we've thought about. But you notice Paul says the same thing twice in verse 16. For by him were all things created. And at the end, he closes it again. All things were created by him. He says the same thing twice. That's interesting, isn't it? I think Paul says this twice to make a couple points here. There's two profound things, and they are found in the prepositions that are put there. First one is by him. The Greek word there is dia, which means through him. The Apostle Paul wants to know that the creative power of God was exercised through or by means of the Son. He plays this role of agency in creation that is hugely significant because it means that because he is its agent, Someone else is its author, and that is the Father. And we start seeing in here some of the Trinitarian thinking that the Apostle Paul teaches the church. We know that the triune God completely was exercised in creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. But Jesus was the agency through whom? And if you don't know Jesus as your creator, your base of existence is wrong. It's not enough to say in scriptural thinking, God made everything when the Bible narrows the focus, tightens the camera as it were, to say through Jesus Christ. It is through the Son that the Spirit first moved upon the waters. And it is through the Son that the Spirit is poured forth to unite sinners in the new creation to Christ. You see, humanity is made for union to a triune God. And that is seen in these prepositions because it's agency of the Son by the work of the Spirit and to the glory of the Father is seen in creation and it is seen in redemption. The second preposition is at the end of the phrase, because notice it says, all things were created by him, which is the word through, or agency. The second one is for him. The Greek there is ace, unto, unto. The goal and the purpose of creation, it says, is unto the son, so that he would rule it to the glory of the father, but the rule, the creation, was made so that he would rule it. The fall then, this is important, the fall, because we're talking before the fall, we're talking creation. The fall then was part of the infinite purposes of God. From all eternity, God the Son had covenanted with God the Father that Jesus Christ would create a world, that they would permit and ordain the fall so that the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, would reestablish His right to rule the throne and to be 
as King of kings and Lord of lords by his marvelous act of redemption. There's a lot packaged into these little prepositions. And therefore, the Apostle Paul wants us to know that the preeminent Christ has inherited all things that he has made. The angelic realms bows to him. The physical realm bows to him. And both realms were made to his glory. You know, it's, it's perhaps the uh, turmoil that we experience in our own lives that unveils so many of the idols that compete for us worshiping the Son. If Jesus made all things for His glory, for His preeminence, to the glory of the Father, why is it that we so often find ourselves worshiping stuff, things, seeking fulfillment in something else, someone else, some created thing? How often don't we take the created stuff or people and elevate it to the divine? We think so much of creatures. Perhaps you expect out of marriage, whether you're married or about to be married or one day hope to be married, you expect what only God can give through Jesus Christ. Perhaps the struggles you face and the turmoil within is because you're trying to squeeze and press out of created things and possessions what you can only possess in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do that, don't we? Let's look at another preposition here, because they're all different. Paul says even more in cornering the teachers. It's in the first part of the verse. I, I left it till the end here. Because remember the last phrases, all things were made by him, through him, and for him or unto him. In the first verse, a phrase it says, for by him were all things made. Now it's the same word, by, by, used both ways. But actually in the Greek, it's not the same preposition. This first one there is en in the Greek, which literally translated means in. Now, it might be weird to say in him were all things created, which is why our translators most often translate it as by him. But just retaining this literal word in actually puts a nuance on it that Paul is doing here. So I'll explain what I'm saying. We need to reflect on these differences. What Paul is trying to say in using the preposition in at the beginning of verse 16 is to show that all of creation, heaven and earth, find their unity in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who integrates everything. He is the center of it all. He is the sphere around all of creation, around which everything takes place. As it were, take the sun around whom all the planets orbit, in the same way, Christ is the one in whom everything finds cohesiveness and purpose and does not stray or err, as the word planet actually comes from the Greek word planetes, which means to err, which is interesting because they were errant things in the night skies, according to the people in history. 
But it means then that the angelic realm outside of Jesus is amiss. It means the created realm outside of Jesus is errant. Without Jesus, then, we can't do what they say when you go to higher education. What do they call it? I'm off to university. Unity in diversity. And I'm supposed to find it at that institution where all the disciplines are studied. But when Jesus is not at the center, you have no unity. There is no unity in diversity. You just have a bunch of, a bunch of faculties. Because the cohesive center is missing. You see, everything hangs together in Jesus Christ. Know Jesus and you have what evolutionists and atheists give you. Purposelessness. Vanity. Emptiness. Nihilism. And that's exactly what we're seeing young people growing up in. They have nihilism. There's no unity. And so why live? And so many, many young people in our culture are distraught and discouraged and depressive. And therefore, I believe that what Paul says by repeating the same phrases twice with different prepositions at the beginning of verse 16 and at the end using different prepositions is this. He is basically in the beginning saying Christ is the unity and at the end of the verse when he repeats these things saying by him and which means through and for him or unto him that is almost like a commentary on the first part of the verse. In him is cohesive unity and he explains it in the other two prepositions. You know to live as you may be doing with Jesus not at the center of your life, of your work, of your future, is it living biblically, illegitimately? That's how the Bible would call it. It's living opposite. It's almost like taking a music instrument that is supposed to be finely tuned to play beautiful music and turning the strings out of tune. rebellion and it's self-defeating if that's you believe me you will not find fulfillment it will only discourage you perhaps you're one of those people who is struggling with meaning and purpose maybe you don't have much direction in life you're young you're waiting to get out of the house so you can do your own thing Call the shots. You don't have to be told what to do. Perhaps you're the person who's just got the family, but everything has kind of fallen into routine and a groove, and you just mindlessly do what you do, and you're not really motivated for what you do. Maybe you're that person who's going to school. You don't know what for. You don't even know what you want to do, and yet you're just kind of doing it because your parents tell you to do it. Why am I doing this? Maybe you're here this morning... And you're that person who wonders what church going is it really all about. Where in all of those questions, in all of those scenarios, is your thinking and your mind defying the gravity of your purpose? Where are you grading against the Lord Jesus Christ's supremacy in your life? That's the question you need to ask yourself.
And so believers, let us find comfort, hope, and joy in a preeminent Lord. Because where purpose exists, we can live towards something. You see, all those questions of aimlessness, why am I doing this, why, 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 kids ask it all the time. Why, mom? Why, dad? You know what they're asking for? Meaning. Meaning. And once you have meaning, you go for it. Once you understand this matters, you run towards it. But without Jesus, the why will ultimately find itself a vacuum. I think knowing Jesus as preeminent, as the unifying cause of all things, means for mothers, your mom, you're being a mother recognizing Jesus made the gift of motherhood. And you, so you may rejoice in the calling of being a mom or a grandmother. It means being a man or a woman is how God designed you. Your identity is not in your mind. It is in Christ's design and how he made you male or female. It means our work, our plans for the future, how we keep our home, what we do when we're shopping. All of these find unity in knowing that the same creator made every aspect of our being. So don't get distracted. You have a purpose. Live towards it by studying and knowing the preeminent Lord Jesus Christ. Last point. Permanent possession. I want to turn back again to the last phrase. All things were created by him and for him. The word were created or has been created is in the Greek what's known as a perfect tense. That's not a throwaway tense. It's used very intentionally here by the Apostle Paul because it is a tense of a past action whose results abide permanently. It means that what Jesus did in creating and being Lord over creation stands. The agent of creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never be dethroned, even though kings rage, even though our prime minister rejects God and his ways. He cannot dethrone our Savior. It means that there will never be a cosmic coup d'etat that will ever take Jesus off the throne. It means angels couldn't do it in Genesis 6. Angels will not do it. The devil couldn't do it. No one can dethrone our Jesus. Whether in the heights of heaven, in the new creation, or in the depths of everlasting hell, also in the future, the supreme creator will always stand permanently as Lord over all. Do we not then want to bow down before him, that before the one who will never be dethroned, who will always reign? From the first creation, from Adam to today, you and me sitting here right now, the goal of the Christocentric creation then has not changed. Now you might be sitting here wondering, well, how do I get there? How can my goals be perfectly calibrated to the one who permanently abides? We must look 
at the unfolding redemptive plan of God. When God created through Jesus Christ in the agency of the Spirit, he created man, male and female, he created them. And what did he say? Have dominion. He gave them to be sub-regions, sub-rulers under his rule. And did Adam do a good job? No, we, he mirrored what we would do. In Adam, we all fell. He failed. Well, God then, after the fall, he sets up Abraham. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And now he calls Israel to be a set-apart nation, a holy nation. Did they pass the test? They failed miserably. So when Jesus came to earth, we see him as the greater Adam. We see him as the greater Israel, fulfilling everything, both pre-fall and post-fall, man could not do. But the creator who is eternal, who is supreme, who is higher than the heavens, and who is immutable, he achieved what we could not do. He is David's perfect son, and he set out to war with sin and the devil, and he, he ruled, he reigned, he defeated them. Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the cross, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is the sure act of victory because it is there that the sinless Son of God laid himself down to be the sin bearer for sinful Adam, sons of Adam, so that the sons of Adam could be made right before God in him. You see, and the resurrection is the mark of victory because we now have new life. We, knew how, we now see in Jesus Christ victory, new beginnings, as if in spring you see the trees bud in the same way in Jesus Christ. We have the first fruits of the new creation. And we see in probably what is one of the most undertaught parts of Christian theology in the ascension of Christ, when he went up to heaven, that he took his rightful throne as the God-man. You see, what this means, that it says all things have been created by him, in the perfect tense, it means that Jesus Christ is preeminent now, and Paul wants us to know that he always was preeminent. If only this could sink in. Christ is Firstborn of both creations. That's what it says. Verse 15, firstborn of every creature. Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. You see, whether it's the old creation or the new creation, there's only one supreme master. It's Jesus. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I'll start here in verse 20. Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. That's the word Mashiach. With whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. 
But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Look at verse 27. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. That is a covenant from eternity. With the Son, with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Isn't that amazing? Because that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the firstborn from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, him that loved us and gave himself for us, and the covenant that the Father and the Son transacted from eternity guarantees the permanence of God's mercy on his seed, on his church. You see, the church, we will never be defeated. Find hope in that. Find encouragement in that. We have a permanent possession in him. And therefore, you do not, you and I, we do not ultimately answer to Justin Trudeau, to Daniel Smith, to the police officer next door, to our parents, not ultimately, nor our teachers. We, you and I, all of us, whether we believe it or not, we will all answer to him, to Jesus Christ. Do you know the firstborn of all creation? Oh, to let this soak in, dear people. Let it soak in that the love of the firstborn, of the preeminent one, is greater than that of any earthly parent. His care is more tender than that of the most sensitive mother. The patience of our preeminent Christ outstrips the patience of Job. His glory is greater than the vast bounds of the galaxies. His authority is more definite than that of the most respected kings of history. His blood is more precious than that of any soul that ever lived or ever shall live. And his forgiveness is wider than that of the greatest offense of sinners. How do you know him? You embrace him as a helpless child who's got nothing to offer in yourself, as a broken son of Adam, looking to the triumphant, greater Adam. His person, his cross, his glory, his worth is all for the sinner. Walk away and stand in awe of our preeminent Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, what can we render unto thee for the blessings you have given to us? Lord, we will lift up our cup of salvation. O Lord, would you fill us with more beholding of you. Lord, that we would want to know you more, our creator, our maker. We thank you that you have come so nigh unto us in the Lord Jesus, and that the Spirit brings us to a full awareness of him. O God, would you open our eyes more. Lord, may we not be satisfied with crumbs, but to 
to grow in the depth and the, he- uh, the height and the breadth of the knowledge and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.